0: We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Well, welcome back to another episode of Weekly Tech, a technology and ethics podcast focused on navigating this digital age with wisdom. Weekly Tech is a project of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, and I'm your host, Jason Thacker. As always, alongside this podcast, we also have the Weekly Tech newsletter that you can sign up to receive each Monday morning, which is designed to help you think deeply about the pressing technology issues of the day and also to stay up to date on the latest technology news. You can subscribe now at JasonThacker.com weeklytech Weekly Tech. In today's episode, I'm joined by my friend, Dr. Ben Mitchell, who's the editor of Ethics and Medicine, an international journal of bioethics, as well as a research fellow at the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, and we talk about bioethics, medicine, and technology. Dr. Mitchell previously served as the Graves Professor of Moral Philosophy at Union University for 11 years. Prior to joining Union's faculty, he taught ethics, including bioethics, and contemporary culture for over a decade at the Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Illinois. He's a senior fellow in the Academy of Fellows of the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity and previously served as its executive director. He's the author of numerous scholarly articles, including an examination of science and ethics, and has contributed to a number of books. And now let's join our conversation. Well, Dr. Mitchell, thank you so much for joining us here on Weekly Tech. As we get started, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and
1: what started you on this path of studying bioethics? Well, I'd be happy to, Jason, and thank you for the opportunity to uh, have this conversation. I've been looking forward to it. Uh, I came into bioethics uh, in some ways through the back door, but in other ways through the front door, and I'll explain what I mean by that. Uh, many people today who enter bioethics or medical ethics do so through the kind of traditional route of Uh, getting interested somewhere in their undergrad degree, maybe going to med school, maybe not, and then going to grad school and doing a Ph.D. And I uh, actually got interested and involved in bioethics uh, as a pastor. I was pastoring in East Tennessee, and um, a young pastor. My uh, church members would uh, come to me and uh, with questions. They would say, uh, uh, "The doctor says he wants to take Granny off the ventilator. What should we do?" And uh, my seminary training, w- uh, I thought, was was excellent, but we never um, talked about what we should do in that case. I knew that we shouldn't kill granny, but I didn't know um, what to do about those kinds of thorny end-of-life issues. And so I got interested in bioethics in the crucible of pastoral ministry, and I found a program then at the University of Tennessee uh, in the philosophy department that Uh, not only included all the uh, historical, philosophical, uh, and ethical preparation that's involved in the PhD, but also a clinical component. I I did a PhD in philosophy with a concentration in medical ethics that involved clinical rotations. So I wore a white lab coat. I rounded with doctors, nurses, med students, uh, pharmacists, social workers at the University of Tennessee Medical Center in Knoxville, and also did a set of clinical rotations at uh, the East Tennessee Mental Health Institution, kind of teasing out the issues in mental health ethics. So I, I came at uh, bioethics uh, or medical ethics as a, a pastoral practitioner, if you will, uh, but then um, saw it from the other side of the patient's bed as part of the healthcare team. And it was a very rich and rewarding experience for me and, and uh, set me on a trajectory uh that um you know has, has allowed me to to think about and to uh, spend a lot of time with folks who think about uh the issues from the beginning of life to the end of life and everything in between
0: I know that's one thing that I really enjoy about your work and your writing is you you can see that. You can see that kind of dual experience of you coming in to address a lot of these questions, not only from the medical angle and the ethical angle, but even from the pastoral side. And I know one of the issues that you focused on a lot throughout your life and your writing is in vitro fertilization, uh, this in vitro technology. Can you explain to us a little bit more about IVF? I think there's a lot of confusion. I know even when my wife and I were going through infertility treatments, uh, the doctor asked us about it, and we didn't really know much about it. But I knew something about IVF was a little unethical in some sense, and there's a lot of debate surrounding that. But can you explain to us a little bit about IVF and maybe some of those ethical concerns that surround that type of technology?
1: happily um, but I have to uh, confess uh, that I'm part of the same club in one way as you uh, are in that um, I'm half of an infertile couple my wife and I wrestled with infertility uh, for a decade or so and finally came to the conclusion that that we couldn't go further ethically in in our efforts to have children and I, I say that um, uh, because I i want those who hear this to be to be certain that i understand something of the trauma and anxiety and the struggle that couples go through with infertility uh, it's very personal uh, for me and i think it's hard for couples who don't experience infertility sometimes to relate uh, they're they're wondering you know how do we stop having children in an ethical way and um, uh, there are plenty of infertile couples who are just uh, uh, begging to hear uh, the doctor say you're pregnant and, uh, and then to, to um, bring that pregnancy to term, have that, that take-home baby, as we say. Um, so let me start there. Um, the, the measure of success for all of the assisted reproductive technologies, the ARTs, The measure of success is a take-home baby. And if you look at the data, uh, the data uh, for success uh, are measured by what they call the take-home baby rate. Um, ARTs are not 100% successful. In fact, uh, with uh, IVF, and I'll come back to describing IVF in a moment, but uh, for IVF, the Centers for Disease Control uh, tracks the success rate. Of IVF. And if a woman is, uh, say, 35 years old without any underlying medical conditions other than infertility and uses her own eggs, uh, the success rate statistically for uh, in vitro fertilization is about 40%. As a woman ages, uh, the success rate goes down pretty dramatically, so that by the time uh, a woman is Forty, roughly, um, the success rate is about twenty-five percent, and I, I think that's an important place to start because I think couples who are struggling with the with the trauma of infertility hear the doctors say or the specialists say, um, "We can treat you for this infertility, and you will have a baby to, to take home with you." And um, it's not quite that simple, and and the success rates are not quite as high as I think most people um, assume. Uh, So IVF are the um, initials for in vitro fertilization. In vitro means in glass. And though you can't see it, I'm holding in my hands right now a a Petri dish. And uh, in glass uh, means that... Fertilization takes place uh, in a Petri dish. Um, In IVF, a woman is induced uh, to uh, produce uh, a large number of of eggs, of of ova, and usually about a dozen of those ova are retrieved and uh, placed in a Petri dish, and a husband's sperm is retrieved and placed in that Petri dish, um, and, uh, hopefully according to the, to the procedure, at least, hopefully, um, there will be at least some, if not all of those eggs that are fertilized and fertilized egg just for shorthand, a fertilized egg is an embryo, a human embryo, a genetically unique, uh, individual member of the human species, a human. And so... Um, all of that sounds uh, promising and sounds wonderful because uh, what we want are embryos that can be transferred to a woman's uh, uterus and uh, though that embryo um, implant and a woman be able to carry that uh, embryo to term for 35 to 40 weeks and uh, deliver a, a baby that, that they uh, can take home with them. Uh, however, there are, there are some significant uh, questions, not only the data that I mentioned that the success rate is far less than 100 um, uh, percent, far less than 50 percent, actually. But there are other questions that, that arise. For instance, um, there's the question about how uh, the sperm is retrieved. And in many clinics, um, a husband is given uh, a vial and uh, placed in a room with pornography and and asked to produce a sperm sample or a retrieval. So that has some ethical uh, questions, uh, doesn't it? Then once you have, uh, say, let's let's say a dozen embryos, uh, genetically unique members of the human species, um, uh, once you have these embryos, um, how many do you transfer to a woman's uterus. Of course, you're not going to transfer a dozen. Um, uh, women don't have litters. Um, and uh, besides, it would be uh, lethal or at least um, dangerous to both the woman and uh, lethal to many of the embryos. So usually, um, one or two embryos are transferred, uh, maybe three, but that would be, that would be um, unusual these days. Uh, maybe, maybe two embryos are transferred to the woman's uterus. Uh, with the awareness that there will be embryonic loss. That means that some of those embryos uh, will not survive. Uh, And so one of the big questions and one of the the ethical issues that I think uh, drives people away, uh, pro-life Christians away from in vitro fertilization, is that if embryos, or I believe um, embryos are human beings, they are human persons, and so I would say, since embryos um, are human persons, um, then then embryonic loss or the death of these embryos is not insignificant. It's a it's a huge moral issue. So putting these embryos uh, unnecessarily at risk. Uh, through IVF um, is problematic uh, at best. And and uh, many of us uh, would, would just say that it's wrong. Um, but let's go beyond that. Let's say that a woman or a couple um, has a take-home baby through this process. There are still 10 embryos remaining uh, in this Petri dish. Uh, actually, they're not in the Petri dish anymore, Um, they have been transferred to a freezer and they have been stored in a frozen state uh, so that um, the couple can either um, try again if if, uh, they were unsuccessful uh, or have a sibling to the first child if they were successful In some cases, a woman can donate those embryos for research purposes, and by research purposes, we need to understand that they will be used in research in which the embryo will will, uh, actually be destroyed, uh, finally, or they could adopt the embryo out. Uh, They could place the embryo up for adoption. Um, Or finally, uh, they could just leave the embryo in storage at a cost of somewhere between $1,500 Fifteen hundred dollars and two thousand dollars per year, uh, depending on the depending on the facility. So I, I think the, the question uh, what is the moral status of the human embryo? Uh, that is to say, what do we owe unborn members of the human species, uh, imagers of God, those who've been made in God's image, What do we owe them? Uh, well, I think we owe them not to to cause unnecessary harm. And all along the way in the in vitro process, there is the potential uh, for unnecessary harm and, and harm in the most acute sense of that, that is to say, the death of the embryo. Um, so, so that in brief is the process. And I think it's one of the reasons, one of the strong reasons why many pro-life Christians um, find in vitro fertilization uh, unethical because of the problem of embryo loss.
0: And I think that's really helpful. I know my wife and I, as we were going through that season, we kind of wish we would have had that crash course uh, because there were so many questions and in the moment you're being pressed because you desperately want, we wanted a child, uh, we weren't able to, um, but the the Lord opened up a different opportunity for us uh, to end up having our oldest son uh, through a different process that didn't destroy that embryonic life uh, that you so wisely pointed out. And I know, yeah, even in the-
1: if I may, I mean, one of the things that you're pointing out as um, you're describing uh, your own experience is that just like grief is death, sometimes infertility is death. And what I mean by that is what couples hear their doctors saying is just the promise that they might have a child that they've always dreamed of and wanted, and they don't. They they're not sometimes informed about the ethical questions. Um, and and sometimes I'm afraid they're given they're overpromised uh, by their physicians uh, or or maybe even by families who've gone through IVF and were successful and they just say oh it was a great experience and you're going to love it and and we got you know we got our baby that way and so I I think it's really really important that Christians especially especially uh, young couples think through these issues before. Uh, they face the crucible of the decision. Uh, think about what you believe about the the, the nature of the unborn human being, uh, the embryo, and um, what what uh, are the appropriate ways to uh, care for uh, the unborn. And happily, um, you know, the pro life movement has been successful in helping people think about. Those things, and um, uh, I think I think the more we can think about it before we're placed in that in that moment of decision, the better off we'll be.
0: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I know one of the other questions that we were even asked um, in the doctor's office, kind of in the heat of the moment, and weren't exactly sure where we set um, at the time were questions surrounding a lot of genetic testing. Um, a lot of this rise in medical technology, we're seeing the ability to test, whether it's pre-implantation or um, even after the woman is pregnant, uh, to do some type of genetic testing. And sometimes that's to have knowledge and just know um, if the baby might suffer from certain defects or certain, have a proclivity towards certain uh, diseases and things like that, but often that's also used to create what's so-called designer babies or to uh, choose the best characteristics and things. Can you help us think through a little bit about that debate surrounding genetic testing and gene editing and a lot of that rise of medical technology?
1: Sure. Um, and it, it starts with IVF. Uh, that is to say, um, these, uh, embryos are, uh, tested. Uh, they are, uh, the, a profile is developed of these embryos, um, while they are, uh, in, uh, in vitro in, in, in the Petri dish. And, uh, they are, uh, tested, uh, for, and I, am using my fingers to make scare quotes now, they're tested for so-called, uh, quality. Uh, and even, even in regular IVF, in normal IVF, where there's no suspicion that there might be genetic problems, uh, those uh, embryos are examined very carefully to see which ones have the best quality so that, so that you have the most uh, likelihood of uh, successful uh, IVF procedure. But where there is a question that that the embryos might have uh, certain markers for uh, certain uh, genetically linked diseases like uh, Down syndrome or Tay-Sachs or Duchenne's muscular dystrophy, uh, those embryos will be tested. Their DNA will be examined uh, to see if they have the markers for those um, those diseases. And if they do, then uh, couples will have to face the decision uh, whether or not uh, those embryos should be transferred uh, to the woman's um, uterus. And one, that's those are excruciating uh, questions. And two, it sets us on the path to a kind of new eugenics, a new a new quest uh, for perfection in. Uh, our offspring. I was in a meeting some years ago now uh, at the American Association for the Advancement of Science, AAAS, and we were discussing this very question, and a, a fertility doc was there um, who said that he had a couple come to him whose embryos, a child, uh, had uh, uh, Tay-Sachs. Tay-Sachs is a particularly Tragic diagnosis and and uh, children who have Tay Sachs um, really really struggle uh, to say the least and it is predominantly uh, uh, a, a genetic condition that is found among a certain family of uh, those with a Jewish ethnic background uh, Ashkenazi Jews and um, Tay Sachs uh, is a pretty it, again is a pretty tragic diagnosis and this fertility specialist said. Because the disability was so acute for Tay Sachs, he didn't have any problem at all um, satisfying this couple's wish of not transferring embryos that had the markers for Tay Sachs. At the same time, he said he had a couple come to him uh, who uh, were both concert level uh, uh, instrumentalists, uh, played in their in their symphony symphony level instrumentalists and they asked him if if he would help them choose an embryo that would be born as a child who had the same kinds of skills that they had so that this child would grow up to be a a concert symphony level instrumentalist as well and this infertility specialist was very very candid with us and um he said he said to us you know I, I can't promise you uh, that you'll have a child who will become a symphony level instrumentalist, but he said, I, I can, I, I can tell you that there is one gene uh, that's associated with oral acuity. That is with the ability to hear very distinctly. And so I could um, uh, only transfer the embryos that have this gene for aural acuity. And he said, he said, but I, I didn't offer them that, he said, and I don't know why. He said, I don't know why I, I would would um, uh, allow one couple to make a decision not to have a child that has certain disabilities, but I I wouldn't want to help a couple have a child who has certain advantages, uh, like being able to hear uh, very acutely. You know, we began to talk about that, and and I think there's a real struggle of where the line is between um, kind of selecting out certain disabilities and, and uh, then selecting in certain abilities. First of all, um, who decides what a disability is and what an ability is? And um, who decides that certain people shouldn't be born because they have a certain disability? Who's allowed to decide that? And I would argue that that's that's God's decision, not not our decision. Um, uh, that that uh, people with disabilities are no less uh, imagers of God than than uh, those who don't have uh, certain disabilities. And moreover, uh, you know, all of us have some disability, um, some some uh, traits that uh, make us. Um, less than, uh, the ideal human being, whatever uh, the ideal human being is. So, so those are worrisome. I, I would encourage listeners, uh, to, um, go back and grab the, the movie, uh, from what, 20 years ago, 15 years ago, Gattaca, um, which picks up on this very theme of, uh, who, who should be allowed to manipulate the genes of our offspring, uh, and for what purposes? And and what and what might that look like?
0: Yeah, and I do want to shift gears just slightly uh, to what might seem like an unrelated discussion, but it is related in some sense, um, especially as the COVID nineteen vaccines are continuing to roll out across the nation and be distributed. Uh, There are ethical questions, and and some have concerns about the ways that these vaccines were developed or the ways that they were tested. Um, And then I know just recently you wrote a really helpful piece of the public discourse called Why We Plan to Get Vaccinated, which is a Christian moral perspective that you wrote with uh, Dr. Matt Arbo and Dr. Andrew Walker. Can you help us to understand maybe a couple of the ethical concerns that are questions that people might have around vaccine development um, and testing and kind of why you chose and why you've said that you will get vaccinated?
1: Yeah. Um, it's a huge set of questions, but, um, but important, especially, especially now in our, um, in this moment in our history. So let me, first of all, say that there have been, uh, many questions related to vaccines in the past. And, uh, The advent of the uh, Corona-19 virus uh, didn't introduce that set of questions. Uh, It just just layered itself on those kinds of questions. Questions about, uh, first of all, the um, sources uh, that were used in the development of the vaccines. And historically, um, many people who have chosen uh, not to Uh, have their children vaccinated, uh, have chosen uh, because they learned that certain vaccines were developed using um, aborted uh, human tissues and uh, or or aborted human cells. And so the problem of cooperating uh, with uh, evil or complicity with evil has been one of the reasons that people have chosen not to um, vaccinate uh, their children. In some cases, the other set of questions about vaccination is always around uh, safety and effectiveness, and and there there are a number of people who have questioned the safety of vaccines and the connection with uh, of certain vaccines with uh say autism uh or other or other problems that um children seem to have faced uh as a result of being vaccinated well those two those two uh kind of uh, webs of questions um are also are also the case with with COVID 19 vaccines uh, as a matter of fact um uh the vaccines that have been developed um have in some cases been tested they weren't they they do not contain um, uh, tissues or cells uh, from aborted fetuses or or uh, aborted children Um, but in some cases they have been tested using materials that were developed back in the 1970s in the netherlands using uh, an elective abortion and so um, Christians uh, who are, are pro life, as as I am, um, worry about the complicity problem. Uh, is taking the COVID vaccine, if it's been tested uh, in that way, is is that somehow contributing to the problem of abortion? And um, I think I think there are good reasons, and we we link to some articles. Uh, that I think provide good reasons why that's not the case um, with the COVID-19 vaccine, that there's enough distance historically, and and more importantly, there's enough distance morally from the decision to um, abort uh, child, that um, there's not a problem of complicity here. But, but again, my you know some of my my Christian friends uh, may disagree with that.
0: Yeah, and it's a really helpful piece that I will definitely link to in the show notes for uh, listeners to be able to check out to dive in a little bit more there. I think it's a really wise and balanced piece and helps to answer a lot of those kind of moral questions that are arising from this. Um, as we finish out our time today, I wanted to ask you, what's a next step for someone? I know often when we have these type of big conversations that are often morally complicated, they can be a lot to take in, kind of like drinking from a fire hose. Um, and so if there's like a book or two that you might recommend that you think would be a good primer or kind of a good next step on some of these questions, what would you recommend to listeners?
1: Well, um, that's a great question. And and uh, these are not the questions that experts uh, deal with alone. These are the questions that every family is going to deal with at some way, in some way or another, either at the beginning of life, at the end of life, or, or in between. And you use the word primer, and I can't think of a better book to start with than Gil Mylander's, Gilbert Mylander's Bioethics, A Primer for Christians. Uh, Gil Mylander uh, not only is an extraordinarily um, competent Christian ethicist, but he also served on the president's council for bioethics in the Bush administration. Um, he is a he is a uh, authority on the subject and and a very very clear writer and somebody whose whose uh, friendship I appreciate and whose work I I use with great profit. And then at the risk of sort of shameless self promotion, um, let me recommend a book written co-written by myself and a physician, uh, Joy Riley, uh, called Christian Bioethics, a Guide for Pastors, Healthcare Professionals, and Families. And this is a conversation between me, um, a, a, the, uh, a pastor, theologian, ethicist, and a physician, uh, Joy Riley, trained in internal medicine. Uh, and we, we have a dialogue in this book about the range of ethical issues uh, from the beginning of life to the end of life, including the issues that we've talked about today, with the exception of of um, uh, COVID-19 and the, and the, the, the vaccine for uh, coronavirus. So uh, I could recommend those. And there are there are others out there that are are uh, equally good. But those would be two good places to start if you want kind of uh, bioethics 101 experience.
0: Well, Dr. Mitchell, I want to thank you so much for joining us here on Weekly Tech. It's been a very fascinating, interesting conversation, kind of diving into some bioethics and these medical technologies that are often pretty overwhelming um, that we haven't given a ton of thought to. So I just wanted to thank you for joining us here today on Weekly Tech and helping us to think through these issues.
1: Well, it's a real pleasure for me, Jason. And thank you for what you and the ERLC are doing. I think this kind of of education and information is vital for us in the 21st century. Uh, And uh, I'm so grateful that um, listeners have access to this kind of resource.
0: Well, from all of us here at Weekly Tech, I want to say thank you for listening. If you enjoy Weekly Tech, would you consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting app? These reviews really help us to know how we're doing and also to share the word about Weekly Tech with others. As a reminder, you can connect with Dr. Mitchell and learn more about his work in the show notes, as well as the number of books that he recommended. You can also sign up to receive the Weekly Tech email briefing each Monday morning, which is a resource designed for you to help you think about the pressing technology issues of our day, as well as to stay up to date on the top tech news. You can subscribe at JasonThacker.com
1: slash Weekly Tech. Thank you, and I hope you have a great week.